Hello, everyone. My name is Kevin Verga, and I'm joined, as always, with my co-host, Devin D'Agostino. Devin, hello. How are you? Glad to be here, Kev. Excited to talk about this song. Me as well. And in just a second, Devin and I are going to take this song, and we're going to stop making sense. And what that means is, every week, Devin and I choose a new Talking head song to analyze and ponder And we let our minds wander to uncharted realms of science and comedy and music, where we answer such burning questions as, who took the money? Who took the money away? Where is my common sense? Why stay in college? Why go to night school? And most importantly, where is that large automobile? All this and more coming up on this episode of Devin and Kevin Stop Making Sense. This week, The Great Curve. your thoughts on the great curve initial thoughts in a word groove this song has like it just rocks it's just fun it's crazy it's exhausting relentless but relentless in the best way possible what do you think yeah it is a groove it is funky relentless is a good adjective for it And I'm finding that the entire Remain in Light album is relentless. I mean, this song is the third song on Remain in Light. It follows directly Cross-Eyed and Painless, which in and itself is a intense song with a lot of parts that is also a really like strong groove. And you get thrust right into the great curve. And then right into Once in a Lifetime, there's no room to breathe on this album. How do you approach a song like The Great Curve? What do you listen for? What are you looking at? What are you hearing? What are you thinking? I'm curious. Well, it's interesting that you say stream, because I was looking a little bit into this album, and Byrne struggled with writer's block during it, but he adapted this like stream of conscience. So a lot of the song they sort of are impenetrable because it's a stream of conscience. You're just sort of being thrust into it. Just as you said, I think the best way to like engage with these songs is just to dance and sing along with them because they're just so much fun, but I want to bring in a little bit. I don't know if you've ever talked about the background of this album. I only recently discovered it because it's pretty interesting. So fourth studio album, 1980, this is from Wikipedia delve deep into the Wikipedia page for this song and album, but there's actually some gems on there. So I wanted to share some of the stuff, but it says drummer, Chris France and bassist Tina Weymouth, a married couple discussed leaving talking heads after Weymouth suggested that burn was too controlling. France did not want to leave. And the two took a long vacation in the Caribbean to ponder the state of the band and their marriage. They became involved in the Haitian voodoo religious ceremonies, practiced native percussion instruments and socialized with the reggae rhythm section of Sly and Robbie. I don't know if this gives a little insight into this album, makes it more clear or less accessible, but what an interesting foundation. 
I'm always interested to hear what music or artists inspire Talking Heads because like we said before, a lot of their music seems unattainable or unapproachable on first glance. But when we learn where these sounds and styles come from, I've found personally that it's easier to start to get a grasp on the song. Episode 5 that we did on this show was Cross-Eyed and Painless. And we talked about how Fela Kuti was a major influence. And then also a famous concert film, not Stop Making Sense, from this 1980 Remain in Light tour is the concert in Rome, where they're traveling with a lot of the musicians that we see again in Stop Making Sense a few years later, but also the guitarist and mastermind behind King Crimson also makes a, a guest appearance and obviously has a lot of influence on the Talking Heads sound. So you're having all this world music, this progressive rock, and then the Talking Heads' own eclectic new wave sound that they're just launching forward, coming into this conglomerate of what a commenter said online. High-powered tribal funk with insane electronic noise guitar solos. Black and white, male and female. This is God. What, what do you make of that? This song is God, the great curve. It feels like the culmination of something. I can't disagree. What do you think? Well, I want to hang on to that. This is God, because I think that is a pretty good summary, summary of the great curve. But I just want to go back to Fela for a moment, because there's a song on this album, Fela's Riff, inspired by Fela Kuti. And a lot of this is like Afrobeat. It's interesting. And there's a lot of, there's been research on it. And they've even said it when they were constructing the album is it's inspired by a lot of different types of African music. So Burns says some of the lyrics were inspired by early rap, very clear Afrobeat and tying it back to this is God. So the great curve, at least how I sort of interpreted it and based on some of the research I came across, I think is about God. It's about like that mother earth figure, the great curve being the great curve of the earth. And there's specific lines, maybe dive in, diving into the song now that suggest that this is something to do with mother earth as well as truth. Oh, I just love this line. Divine to define, she is moving to define. So say so, so say so, it's just a great line. Divine to define. I almost interpreted that as like the only way to define this song is that we just have to call it divine because it's so inaccessible. It's working on such a higher level that it has to be divine. We can't define it any other way. Yeah, it seems like it is a cut above the rest. It is godlike. It's this massive song. It's massive. It's long. It's six and a half minutes. It has a wall of funky sounds. There's three vocal lines going on at once. There's two bass lines. There's three percussion lines in the studio version. And then the talking heads themselves are already hard to grasp. So all this is coming together. And the line you were just saying, divine to define, she is moving to define, so say so, so say so, is just one of the vocal lines that is happening. On top of that, Byrne is singing, she is only partly human being. She defines the possibilities. And then under that vocal line, there is, she wanted to find, so say so, so say so. So that same line is happening at different times of 
polyrhythm vocal line under the main melody. That's amazing. I mean, that's so, it's so much going on that your ears can't even pick it up at once, which is why it seems so godlike and massive and un unapproachable. You remind me, and I had to look up the term, um, a term called glossolalia, glossolalia, which is when people just mutter these like nonsensical words and phrases, and they say that they've been possessed by like some higher power, an angel. Interestingly, the other way to talk about glossolalia is speaking in tongues, inspired by it, but it does. It feels like that glossolalia. It feels like someone has been possessed by some kind of higher power and is just uttering out these nonsensical, crazy phrases, which actually resonate very deeply. A line that really sticks with me, which reminds me of early con earlier conversations we've had, is the opening line, sometimes the world has a load of questions. Seems like the world knows nothing at all. The world is near, but it's out of reach. Some people touch it, but they can't hold on. Can't remember exactly what song we talked about, that the world is closest to us. We inhabited it. We're a part of it. And yes, yet it's inaccessible. Like we don't understand most of the stuff that's going around us, going on around us. If you want to go from like physics, you can say, oh, the 96% of the universe is dark matter. I think I saw that somewhere. But just in general, our subjective experience of the world, whatever, the stuff that is closest to us, we can't understand, even though it's right here in front of our eyes. What a cool line. And yet we still enjoy it. We still enjoy a lot of life. We still enjoy partaking in religion, partaking in and listening to music, getting into romantic relationships. All of these things are difficult. Engaging with them is hard, and yet we still enjoy it. And the seeking for meaning is what we enjoy about it a lot of the time. But going back to the, the initial opening lyrics that you just brought in, I sometimes get teary-eyed when I read these lyrics. Sometimes the world has a load of questions. Seems like the world knows nothing at all. I found a personification of Earth or the world throughout this song, and it starts in these first lines saying that the world has questions and the world knows nothing. What do you make of that? That's interesting because I originally interpreted it as like the world is all the people around us, all the human beings. Mm. But in the rest of the song, the world is personified. The world is a human being. It's a woman, at least it seems like, right? That idea of Mother Earth. So maybe there is. The world has a load of questions. I was actually just reading, and I can't remember where, about this idea, um, a philosophical movement, that basically says God is not omnipotent and all-knowing, but God shifts, their, God shifts their knowledge as we do. It was actually, it's a book called Plato and Platypus, and they use jokes to define philosophy. And basically the joke goes that they use, this guy hears a booming voice and the booming voice says, quit your job. So he quits his job, right? Then the booming voice says, go to Vegas. And he goes to Vegas. And the booming voice says, um, bet all your money at this blackjack table. And he bets all his money. And he's like, all, all along, he's saying, you sure, you sure? And he says, yes, do it, do it, do it. And he's playing blackjack and he has like a 10. And the booming voice says, hit him again. And he says, hit me. And he gets a nine. The booming voice says, do it again. And he gets an ace and he has a 20. And the booming voice says, do it again. And he gets an ace again. And he says, 21. And he says, what? Oh my God. And then the booming voice above says, oh shit, I had no idea that was going to happen. But <laughs> a God that doesn't know everything, that evolves with us, because that's the only way to escape this idea that everything is deterministic in all of the world. Um, we have no free will.
you heard it here first, folks. We have no free will. God doesn't know what he's doing. We'll see you next episode. Fantastic. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Here we go. Here we go. All right. This is where I... So this idea, this idea that God, the Judeo-Christian God that's dominant in a lot of people's lives here in America, the idea that maybe that God, the omnipotent, omniscient, all-good male God, represented by the Father, what if we just don't describe it in those ways? Like you said, what if it's not omnipotent and omniscient? And now we're kind of hovering around this idea that what if God is a woman? Divinity, we brought up already. The divine feminine. The divine feminine is an integral part to all sorts of world religions. You can find an aspect in of femininity in almost all of them. But a lot of the divine feminine has been removed from my experience, my research, my studies, from a lot of the discussion of God, the allegories to God, the imagery of God, and I think that it should be acknowledged here. Because I think that the Divine Feminine is present very strongly in this song. Do you think so? Did you initially think that? Or did my bringing it up instigate any thoughts there? I, I felt this idea of Mother Earth. And I think Carl Jung, the psychologist, talks about our shared consciousness and says there's this idea in the shared consciousness of the Mother Earth. Because in all different cultures and religions you find this maternal um, personification of the world. And then often you have like a father sky. So in the Greek mythology, you have Gaia or Gaia, who is mother earth and the sky, and they were both Titans. And that's how they explain the beginning of the universe, whatever it may be. And a great line in this song is the world moves on a woman's hips. So one of the songs, The Great Curve, exemplifies the African theme by including the line, the world moves on a woman's hips. He studied straight, straight speech from John Dean's Watergate testimony to the stories of African-American former slaves to help him with these lines. And actually here is a quote from Byrne. Oh boy, I'm not talking about one particular woman. I'm not talking about my girlfriend. You think that's very down and earthy, but I was talking about something metaphysical, that a gesture can resonate outward like ripples in a pond causing realms of meeting. An attitude of the body can embody a whole world view. And he laughed again. What do you make of that? As one, as one does, you laugh when you say things like that. I feel very relieved that Byrne took this so seriously. He was trying to say something. We said that last week with making Flippy Floppy that the Talking Heads had something to say. There was all sorts of lyrics, all these rhyme schemes and new verses and bridges in making Flippy Floppy. In this song, there's one chord over a vamp and a lot of the lyrics are repeated, but Byrne will come back in with these verses that are just so striking. And I think that line that you just brought up, the world moves on a woman's hips, was the first one that really caught my ear. And that's a beautiful line of verse and poetry. I thought it could be all sorts of things, and I'm happy that he's, he said it's metaphysical. I thought it could have been, on one side of it, subverting the myth of Atlas, the man who's holding up the world. And then also I was thinking, a woman's hips, that could be Mother Nature imagery, or also just at, on the personal level, like the womb life begins around the area physically of a mother's hips 
I don't want to get too deep into it because I'm really not familiar. But again, Carl Jung, that um, philosopher, that psychologist and philosopher who talks about the shared consciousness, discusses this Mother Earth idea and also something to do with the shape of the hips. And he brings in like Pandora's jar and the idea of birthing. So maybe that's a conversation for another time. But I think it's interesting that you grasped onto that. And it also, at another level, could almost be considered objectifying, right? Like, I'm trying to think of an example, but that idea, oh, she moves the world with her hips or something. It's not the level Byrne meant it on, but as we've said, these lyrics work on very many levels. So I think that's another interpretation. The idea of the male gaze, we've talked about, and she was, the pronoun of she and female imagery was used heavily. But I also like how within this verse that starts with the world moves on a woman's hips, the world moves and it swivels and bops. The world moves on a woman's hips. The world moves and it bounces and hops like hip swivel, like you're dancing. Like we said, this is a song that you just dance to. At the end of the day, we can break this down as much as you want, but it's a song that's just funky. The way that religions or societies come up with ways for explaining the universe. So if you believe like, in the tradition, the world is on top of a woman's hits, and that could explain the tides and the change of the day and the season. It also reminds me of, in the Arabic tradition, religions, they talk about Bahamut, who is this great ox or a turtle that the world balances on top of. And then there's this whole different um, group of animals, and they're all balanced on top of each other. And also sort of getting again to this God who isn't omniscient, or maybe this objectification of women, or just having things out of your control. They say, moving by remote control, hands that move her are invisible. Sort of reminded me of our conversation in Making Flippy Floppy, where we talked about the systems in our lives that guide us out of our control. It's interesting as well, because Once in a Lifetime, another song on this album, is all about floating through life unconscious until you suddenly wake up and realize, where am I? Yeah, you covered a lot of ground that I was thinking subconsciously. And this is, Devin, this is why I need you as a figure in my life. You bring a lot together for me. And... We talked about how this song is domineering and is on top of you, much like life is. And this trio of Cross-Eyed and Painless into the Great Curve, into Once in a Lifetime, for the first time in my life, I listened to them all back to back to back, like this week, and it was surreal. I felt it. And the when the Great Curve f- finishes, and then Once in a Lifetime like hops in with that bass line... And you envision that music video where David Byrne like comes up from the ground, like gasping for air and is sweating and having an existential breakdown. You really feel it because when the great curve goes for six and a half minutes, making you question who God is, (laughs) and you're also dancing your hips off, it's a lot. And then the song ends, and then all of a sudden you're like, what the hell was that? I, I need to think about things i need to take stock and that's what once in a lifetime i think is it's such a fantastic cadence because those first three songs on remain in light born under punches into cross-eyed into the gray curve they're just unrelenting swamp funk and once in a lifetime is the break in the album but the break that you're having in terms of like a more consonant harmony is a person having an existential breakdown I think that's amazing. I just love when albums are well calibrated like that. Did you have any experiences like that, mixing this song with other songs? I have to bring it back to existentialism again. Heidegger, who we've spoken about in earlier episodes, 
talks about how we're immersed in everyday life. And this is an inauthentic way of being, right? Like most of us are, but this isn't genuine. It's a lot like once in a lifetime, actually, that you're just sort of floating through every day and not acknowledging and realizing what's going on around you. And you're missing a part of your life because of that. And an example he uses, he talks about tools and we have all of these things around us. He talks about like hammers, but a cell phone's a good one, right? And we don't realize that this is just the tool that we use until it's broken or out of funk. I had that experience recently. I was, my phone wasn't turning on. And then I looked at it. I'm like, I have this with me everywhere I go. This weird, like a little rectangle, right? It's in my pocket. I use it, right? I'm completely immersed in it. But all it is, is just this thing in my hand. And Heidegger says, those moments are very important for us when we look around and our pencil doesn't work. And we realize, oh my God, this pencil is like so weird. We use it to write, but it's really just a stick of wood. And it brings us out of this every day. Sorry, sorry. I just, we're like having an existential breakdown right now. (laughs) Yeah, completely. No, that's good. And I hope the listeners are as well. Our goal isn't to make people love, stop making sense. I think our goal is to bring people to the same existential breakdown that we are, to separate, to spread the insanity. So we're taking stock. What is a pencil? What is a phone? What is this podcast? What are we doing right now? Me and Devin aren't even in the same room. I have all these wires connected to make this operation work, but also somehow it's not connected to the internet, whatever that is. And Devin's just in a different part of the world and we're talking and I see him and I see me, but it's not really, (laughs) it's a picture of Devin and we're talking about a song and I'm questioning God. And I think that, I've had moments like that where I take stock of the moment and they feel like there's moments of clarity, like I'm seeing things clearly. And then there's also the darker, grittier side of those existential present moments where you're thinking, wow, who's in control here? <laughs> where are the rules? What's happening? Why? Why? <laughs> That's it. Why? How? You may ask yourself. How did I get here? <laughs> and I, I love that you brought up this connection between this is our like sneaky once in a lifetime podcast ep- yeah. episode without having once in a lifetime. But I think that what you mean about the song is exactly right. Like having the broken pencil or the broken phone or realizing where did my large automobile go? This song sort of, even though it's working on a metaphysical level, thrusts us into reality because we lose touch with our everyday. And we realize all these things we have in every day don't make any sense. And that's why we go to once in a lifetime for the next one, because suddenly we're like, what is going on? How the heck am I over here with my beautiful wife and large automobile? And I don't know. I just, I glanced, I was glancing at the lyrics again, and then it it stuck out with me, the divine to define. Yeah. Going back to religion when we're just completely lost, because what else are we going to do? Divine to define. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) This song makes me sweating, makes me sweat, and in like the best way possible. Just a brief aside, I took a nap right before this, and I woke up, and it was just like a healthy sweat. (laughs) I'm going to cut that off, but I just feel good. A healthy sweat is good. Um, But yeah, I, I liked those, that lyric that you just brought up, which is, divine to define she is moving to define so say so so say so and then under that they're saying she wanted to define or she wants to define it sounds like 
And I found that I'm trying to define who she is as I listen. Is she God? Is she Mother Nature? Is she Mary Magdalene? Who is she? Why is she only partly human? Why is she defining the possibilities? She has a message for everyone. She seems like a prophetic character. So I'm trying to define she, but she is trying to define the divine. So I'm defining this character who's defining the world. Does God define the world? Or is this person a preacher? I don't know, like in once in a lifetime, he's an evangelical preacher. So is this, is he talking about this godlike female figure in this song? Oh, you gave me a lot there. Um, (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I want to, there's two major things I got out of there. Moving to define. I think that's interesting because when we think about definition, right, we go through the idea of rationality and reason. And we think about the very strict idea of understanding and studying, reading, but this is a different kind of reading, different kind of learning, a different kind of intelligence, the kinesthetic, using movement to understand the world. Within a song like this, like we talked about in the beginning, the sort of only thing you can do with it is dance. Because if you (laughs) spend too much time on the lyrics, you start to freak out as we are right now. So using movement to just understand because that's the way to, to allow to properly comprehend it and also to release some of that tension. And really, I think we get the best understanding from the song from just dancing along. I, I am such a person that we both are. This is why we do this. We overanalyze things. We like to make sense of the world by learning about it and saying, that's it. We, the words make sense. And this practice that we're doing right now is becoming comfortable with things that don't make sense. A lesson that I've learned, especially in quarantine, is that sometimes you just gotta dance. There's nothing else to think about. You've done all the work, just let it go. And it's so freeing. I like feel such a release when I dance. And I know dancing is an age-old art form and source of joy, but I, I, I'm not a dancer, but I'm becoming one. And this song and the Talking Heads overall have helped me release that and just get a new sense of understanding a song by dance because this is rooted in dance music we called it high-powered tribal funk i mean it's it's rooted in movement and it's crucial to understanding it i want to go dance to this song right now but i'm not we're gonna finish the episode this is my stress relief song if i'm like tense or whatever i'll just go i'll put on the american utopia version which is that song is insane, the momentum of it. It's completely relentless. It doesn't stop. It's exhausting, but such a blast. But I wanted to just, you talked about Once in a Lifetime being sung by like evangelical preacher. I'd argue that this song is like, getting back to that idea of speaking in tongues, glossalia, is that's what that is. This is someone who's been possessed by God or an angel and is just spewing out gibberish, right? which with a very deep meaning behind it. It's also interesting too, because I think glossalia was all often practiced by like religious women, in at least the Christian tradition. So that could be something else too, again, a woman speaker. But this idea of just speaking out these nonsensical gibberish as if you've been possessed by God and a release, because that's what it was seen as. It was seen as a complete release. You've been so dedicated to religion. You're so immersed in the moment that you're just speaking anything that comes out of you, sort of like we're doing right now. Yeah. (laughs) So how we're just spewing thoughts out of our face. (laughs) I want them to picture, I want you to picture like a big jug of water by me and I'm just guzzling it because I'm sweating so much because this song is so exhausting. 
and Kevin's like fanning himself, getting any kind of air he can. He's in the window open. It's taxing. It's a taxing song. Our job is hard, man. We're we're putting in the work for you, listener. And I like how this song is so high energy. And then there's these move there's it's so high energy. There's so much to take in. Polyrhythms, poly vocal harmonies, all sorts of things. And then when they merge, oh boy. When they merge and they're singing all at once and making r- rhythmic hits all at once, like the world moves on a woman's hips. The world moves and it swivels and bops. There is nothing more important in the world than this culminated energy. Like you said, how how do you have the energy to do that? The American Utopia cast recording was, for me, the inception of this episode. I think I listened to it like a few weeks ago for the first time, which was also kind of the first time I listened to The Great Curve seriously and was ready to take it in. I wasn't mature enough yet. And I think I sent it directly to you, Devin. And I was like, we need to do this song. I need to just think about it and talk about it. I am sweating. I'm crying, I'm sweating, and I'm loving every second. It's just a healthy release, this song. It is. Wow. Kevin, should we die? I mean... <laughs> There's nothing else to do. There's nothing else to do but die. And I'm ready. Let's die. Let's do it. All right, let's die. Um, before we do this die, I will say that these characters and setting have all been pulled from making Clippy Floppy. However, I think it's just appropriate and fine for this song to use it, so we'll go right into it. I'll roll for you first. Okay. You got a three, so you are Dr. Doctor. Fantastic. <laughs> I got a five, so I'm the beast. Oh, wow. Let's see where we are. So we are five again. We have our faces pressed against the window. That's Dr. Doctor and the Beast with our faces pressed against the window. Okay. All right. Mr. Beast, it was a it was a goddamn honor to deliver your half-beast minotaur child today. I mean, look through the glass. Look at them. They're absolutely beautiful. A nice, healthy, 25-pound baby boy minotaur. I mean, how are you feeling? Doctor, doctor, I'm a little worried. Are both halves supposed to be human? Is that normal? Because, like, the top half and the bottom half are human. No bull, giraffe, anything. <laughs> Should I be concerned? Well, how, how about you take a seat? I have some troubling news about your baby minotaur boy. Yes, he looks like a normal human human boy on the outside. And you might be asking yourself, where is the beast? And um, I gotta say, it's it's on the inside. This is some something we've been known for a while throughout the pregnancy, and you're gonna have to deal with it throughout this Minotaur baby's life. And that on the outside, they're projecting a normal baby, healthy, handsome human, but on the inside, there's something much darker and rawer. I'm just trying to get this in my head. So you're saying like it has skin of human, but internal organs of animal. That's exactly so it's like correct. An inside out. So it has like two stomachs, like a cow and a cow heart. I don't know if a cow heart is special, but I I just can't picture my beautiful baby beast with a cow heart. That's exactly correct. It has 
three stomachs, two hearts, and a, a stomach full of grass. Be prepared for when he gets old enough to go to school. He's going to be chewing a lot of cud. He's just going to be chewing grass until it becomes a fine, mushy film in his mouth. And he'll probably get made fun of a little bit for that when he's getting older. But for now, don't worry. You're a capable father, Mr. Beast. And I, Dr. Doctor, really believe in you full fullheartedly. I really do. I, you could do this. Dr. Doctor, I'm just concerned because I, I trust you. I mean, you have two doctors, so you must be a trust trustworthy person. But are we sure it's Beast on the inside? Like, if it's all human, tell me. I can have that conversation with my wife, but I'm just a little suspicious, Dr. Doctor. Mr. Beast, I appreciate that. I mean, my doctorate's in film and math have <laughs> led me to this moment of delivering your minotaur child. And I was really just flying by the seat of my pants here. And I'm honestly, I'm just taking guesses at this point. I mean, this is surreal. I'm a doctor doctor and you're a beast. Why do you think we got these seats so closely to the, close to the nursery? Everyone is scared, terrified, ran out of this hospital when you walked in. And I was the only one that was brave enough to deliver this baby. And yes, on the outside... It looks human. It looks natural. But that that was not natural. That was crazy. I mean, I'm scared right now. I'm still shaking. Mr. Beast, I'm the doctor that delivered your baby, and I, I'm disturbed to... It, I'm checking his records. This is a full human baby. Mr. Beast, I don't think this can be your child. Who's this man you're talking to? Be gone. Be gone. We don't need you. Please, I'm talking to my patient. Wait a second. You're the doctor that delivered my child? Then who are you? I'm Dr. Doctor. I recognize you. I saw you with my wife. What? This is your child, isn't it? No. Child. This is a normal human baby. This isn't my beast baby. I take the baby and run. Ah, (laughs) I breathe fire into the I breathe fire into the ceiling. Up there is like You slept with my wife. (laughs) No. Honey, come here. Yes, darling. How can I help you? Who is this man? This man with a doctorate in math and film. Oh, that's Dr. Doctor. I like Dr. Doctor. No! (laughs) (laughs) I can't live in a world like this. I breathe fire and melt us all, and we both die. Nice. That's it. (laughs) Dr. Doctor. That was a nice concise one. I like that. We are in and out. Dr. Doctor is mean. I don't like him. But your wife did. Okay, so to stop making sense today, since this song has inspiration from African mythology and um, theology, I looked at some of the African gods and goddesses, and specifically I focused on Anansi, who was a West African trickster god, usually pictured as either a spider or a human. And it was one I remembered because we read like children's books. I remember sitting in my library in elementary school and reading books about Anansi. So I looked it up because I wanted to get a bigger, a better idea of who this figure was. And I found this one story. And I think especially when we think about truth and wisdom, as we often do on this podcast, and relevant to the great curve and this woman who's seeking understanding, this story really resonated. So it's called Anansi Tries to Steal All the Wisdom in the World. 
So Anansi was clever, but he wasn't wise. And he wanted, wanted to find a way to get wise easy because he was a clever guy. So he could always come up with easy ways to do things. So he decided he was going to fill a gourd with the wisdom of everyone he had and keep it all for himself so he could be the wisest person, both be the cleverest and the wisest. So he went to door to door asking for advice and wisdom. And he thought he was being really clever and like sneaky by getting people to share, but people were really open to share. They were very happy to share their wisdom with them because they could tell that he needed it. But he got paranoid. He had all this wisdom. He collected it up in a big gourd and he said, what if someone tries to steal it? So he decided to hide it up in a big tree but he couldn't climb the tree holding it. He kept spilling some of the wisdom out on the ground as he tried to climb up and with his jug of wisdom. His son comes over and he says, dad, just tie it to your waist and then climb the tree, right? So nothing spills out. So you don't have to carry it and spill things out. And Nancy was annoyed. How could this child be smarter than him after he'd attained all of the world's wisdom? So he's angry, he's annoyed, he's climbing up this tree and he's so frustrated by it that he accidentally drops it and he spills the wisdom into a river and it spreads out across the world to everywhere. And at the end, he realizes, you know what? That's all right, because he says, what is the use of all that wisdom if a young child still needs to put you right? What do you make of that? Well, you just activated a part of my brain that's lain dormant for a long time, much like a godly spider in her web. Uh, I used to listen to these children's tapes by... uh, a very good musician named Lou Del Bianco. Like, he had some great songs and just CDs for children. And I just remember so, like, vividly, but also vaguely <laughs> listening to the story of this Anansi. I like the uh, description of clever but not wise. And I feel like we could be too clever for our own sake. And something about wisdom is very different and almost simpler. You can't cheat to become wise. You gotta just sit and wait for it and sit in life. I think that's really nice. I, that was a that was a nice moral. How did you see it fit into the song? Well, on a couple different levels, getting back to this idea of wise but not clever. Back in the time of the Greek philosophers, I think it was about Socrates, someone wrote like a parody of the philosophers, something mocking them. He talks about a philosopher and he's so busy looking at the stars that he doesn't see what's right in front of him and he falls down a hole. That idea of being so concerned with esoteric knowledge or wisdom that a child ends up putting you in your place. Turning it back to the song, which I think it works on a level of this too, is this idea in the song about seeking truth and trying to define things and still being unable to. In the second verse where they say, she is moving to describe the world. She has messages for everyone. Night must fall now darker, darker. As this woman goes on to seek wisdom, it seems like things are more inaccessible, right? Like it's darker night. It's harder to see. Things are less illuminated. Yeah. So I'm just thinking about this difference between wisdom and ability to just sort of exist. I wish I re-listened to this. Alan Watts lecture uh, maybe before this but it's all coming back to me now so it's good um, a good reminder where he talks about the divine feminine and how while the male Judeo-Christian God says let there be light and is the kind of lighter side of the yin and the yang the female imagery of like Gaia and like powerful female gods is the darkness he said that, you know, like Atlas and 
holding up the world and God making earth, they're all described as males. But the empty darkness of space where matter has room to culminate into life, the great beyond, the great space in between is the female. And without the female, there is no room for the world to exist. The world moves on a woman's hips. The woman's hips might be, I guess, the yang or the yin. I'm not sure which one. Obviously, I'm just kind of spitballing here, but that was just interesting imagery uh, in terms of idealizing the divine feminine. And it's interesting that the lyrics that you brought up say darkness, like night must fall now, darker, darker. And while right now we usually have poor imagery associated with nighttime and darkness, we think bad. But it's not. It's a natural part of life. It is the yin and the yang, day and night. We need it to have life. All right, I think I'm getting somewhere. We think about like dark night, right? That's sort of a time for nothing is illuminated, right? But it's time of for celebration, for dance, for festivities. Versus this light, illumination, wisdom, but you have the philosopher falling down a hole because they're too busy looking at the stars. So maybe moving away from illuminating everything and just experiencing or understanding through a different facility than traditional forms of wisdom, of traditional forms of knowledge and understanding we talk about in psychology and neuroscience, how there's multiple forms of intelligence, right? IQ tests have basically been forgotten because they don't measure emotional intelligence or physical intelligence or musical intelligence. Perhaps to understand the world, we have to turn to different forms of understanding. Maybe physical dancing movement is another way to access knowledge that we haven't considered so far. Yeah, I mean, that's that's bringing all, almost all the things that we discussed all together, which I really like. And I think the lyrics where all the vocals truly come together for one beautiful moment is a world of light. She's going to open our eyes up. A world of light, she's going to open our eyes up. Where finally, all these polyrhythms and vocal harmonies come together to sing that one line twice. I Now, I'm interpreting it as, right now we have a world of light where it's all this conventional male wisdom. It's all light. It's all let there be light. But the dark, divine feminine is going to come up and truly open our eyes up because it brings us the darkness. And we... The only way you can conceptualize and relativize light is to know darkness, and we need both. We think of lightness and opening our eyes up as seeing light and seeing more, but the darkness is just as important. This this quest for no knowledge and this quest for just simply being and existing is so critical to wisdom and is often associated with the divine feminine, which is wonderful, and which is why it's so important to have it in our theories or theoretical knowledge and our dogma in our day-to-day lives i think what this is, might be ta- discussing or what an, a major interpretation i'm getting from it is finding different ways to engage with and to interact interact with the world i mean our first interpretation of this song both of us were like how do you access this how do you get into it right how do you open it up through dancing just by dancing to it and sort of f- having fun with it and enjoying it and grooving And then eventually, once you've grooved through it, right, once you've been able to just let it sort of wash over you, then maybe you can dive down and start getting deeper and figuring out what it means. But at the same time, you know, again, going back to that last line of the story, what's the use of all the wisdom if a young child still needs to put you to right? 
what's the use of understanding the song if you can't just enjoy it and dance to it? And accepting the fact that understanding can come in many forms. And also just taking a step back and being not being too vain and being like, there's still stuff I don't know. It brings everything that we spoke of together from the godliness all the way down to the danciness of the song is what's a song if you can't enjoy it? If you overanalyze something to death, you're missing something, the hole right in front of you. You're going to fall because <laughs> you're looking at the stars. That's amazing. And, you know, this song inspires that from the bottom, the ground up, from the hips up. You dance to it, and then it'll work its way up your body until it hits your head, into your brain where you can start analyzing it. And then it goes into Once in a Lifetime where it's very cerebral, and then you can start to find your way to dance to that song. It's it's just such a work of art. I want to go dance to it. <laughs> That's all I want to do. Now I just want to listen and enjoy it. Let's go dancing. How are you going to stay hungry? Like you said, I think I'm just going to go dance with some talking heads. And I think I'm also going to find more songs that I like and dance to them. Or just maybe just like not take them too seriously. And The Great Curve is still new to me. So I'm just going to take more time with this song and just continue to fall in love with it because it's a really fantastic massive tune and i love it what about you how are you gonna stay hungry yeah likewise i think i'm gonna just look down and make sure i'm not missing any holes in front of me start paying more attention to what's going on and be willing to just enjoy something for what it is this has been Devin and kevin stop making sense thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next episode Sounds good. I hate to say it. I think we've made some sense today. I don't know. <laughs> oh, no. Stop making sense. Stop making sense.